I was I had left St. Francis. I had walked down 31st Street, and I'm looking through Chinatown through the canyon. I saw a jet fly between the canyon, just scoop by on 31st Street heading south. I said, oh, so it must be going to LaGuardia. It's low flying. So I saw it sort of swooped on an angle, then swooped uh, to the uh, west of the buildings, and then it came back, and I said, holy crap. They're going to get close. And I said, oh, it's a movie. It's got to be a movie. And then all of a sudden, very quietly, I said, it's going to hit the building. And it went on in an angle. And it was just sort of a, a poof. And it was this long orange, just a bright orange, and then smoke. I was in the city very early. Uh, doing a, uh, another job, and uh, I got called by a photo editor over at Reuters at the time, and he said, uh, hey, can you go down to the World Trade Center? Um, a plane hit the, hit, hit the towers. And I ran back, a half block back to the front. I ran in the kitchen, I where's Michael? Ran upstairs to his room, and he was in his bed. He was laying in his habit. He'd gone to morning prayer. Michael, you've got to get up a plane, hit the World Trade Center. I said, it was a big one. I saw a big one. He said, oh, my God. And then all of a sudden, his little beepers were going off and his alarms. He got up, hopped out of his habit, put on his black shirt, pants, and started putting on, just put on the jacket and got his stuff, and he was a nervous wreck. And uh, thank God that I was able to say I love you, and we were able to give a hug. And then he went out, and uh, I never saw him again. I made my way about three or four streets down down Broadway and looked up and I heard this poof, like a, like a sound, like a really eerie kind of a sound. And I looked up and you could see the shards of the building just coming down Broadway. I raised my lens, made one or two frames and then kind of ducked in a vestibule and the smoke went away, you know, went by me. You know, I was making my way through kind of shards. It was, there was debris everywhere and everywhere and made it to the base where people were starting to evacuate out of the, the North Tower. The stairwell was still intact at the time. So people were all covered in smoke. And uh, I, I made, it, made my way across, started walking towards, make, started making some pictures, and I looked to my right and I saw uh, a fireman, uh, an office of emergency management person, uh, a Port Authority policeman, a guy that looked like an FBI agent. He had FBI on his jacket. And they were carrying this man in a chair, and uh, you could definitely tell he was—he, he, you know—he had passed. But they were still—they were carrying him in this really like important way, like they were trying to get his body out of there. And he was in a chair, and he was just slumped over. And uh, so I started making pictures. I had no idea who he was, and it di I didn't have any idea who he was. To about two or three days later, you know, I saw they said they finally identified him as Father Michael Judge. And then he was the fire chaplain, and you know, then the kind of the folklores and the tales started going around about about, about him and such. And, and Michael was the only—that's the only picture of anyone coming out of the trade center who was intact, who was recognizable, and who was viewable. And of course, oh yeah, the following day there was that picture that that was in every newspaper all around the world—the image of a man been carried out, just stared at that picture and we couldn't believe it. Um, and then of course by evening it was identified this is, you know, Father Michael Judge, chaplain to the fire department in New York City.
The photograph was intriguing. This 68-year-old fire chaplain, Father Michael Judge, with his Irish face covered in dust down at Ground Zero. As the weeks went on, my curiosity grew about him, his name, the folklore, how he died, and more to the point, how he lived. From my understanding of what happened to him was he could not, he could not get out of the building to anoint Danny Sue, um, who was a firefighter who was the captain of our football team. He couldn't get out because of the debris and the people who were coming down. Danny Sue himself was um, hit by um, someone who had to jump rather than be consumed in the flames. But it came, the 110 stories came down and came through the lobby like a roaring train. His body was blown across the lobby into the escalators. And he died of blunt force trauma to his head. But I mean, it was a bad way to go. I mean, he, it was, uh, he didn't suffer, I don't think, any physical pain. I think he was literally scared to death. I mean, I think it was, uh, he was literally terrified to death. Which is not a good way to go. Everyone in New York seemed to own a piece of Father Michael. Irish America claimed their son of Leitrim immigrants. His father was from Kesh Kerrigan. There's a memorial there. The people who currently own what was the Judge Farm, because um, there was no family left, everyone emigrated out, <clears throat> um, really because of the poverty of the land. Yeah. The current owners of it contributed an acre of land on what was known as Judge Lake to have a memorial. Um, for Michael. So his twin sister, Dimfna, and myself, and Michael Daly of the Daily News, the three of us went over for the dedication of it a few years ago. Malachi McCourt. Um, thing and Michael getting killed, uh, the number one death certificate, too. But that was typical of him, you see. He, like, he didn't mind being number one, even in death. <laughs> Sounds funny, doesn't it? <laughs> Odd. New York royalty paid their respects to Father Michael. Hillary Clinton gave the oration at his requiem mass. My husband and I first heard of Father Mike during the White House years. We kept hearing about this charismatic Franciscan who ministered to the homeless, to AIDS victims, to immigrants, with perhaps a special touch for Irish immigrants, and who loved his firefighters. So we invited him to the White House. What a beacon of light. He lit up the White House as he lit up every place he ever found himself. Father Michael's family, the brothers in the New York Fire Department. Uh, here in the city of Sirens. Michael used to love putting on the sirens, by the way. That was, I think that was one of the 
his great delights in being a fire chaplain is that he put on the lights and sirens and the night before he was murdered, he and another Franciscan went flying through Manhattan with lights and sirens, all both laughing like little kids. Word spread about Father Michael's work with the city's voiceless, the homeless, and those who had suffered with AIDS. In my life, I began to hear of Father Michael as the AIDS epidemic emerged. So I would hear Father Michael's name over and over again. There's this priest who will come to you. There's this priest who will help you. And gradually, as the weeks went on, New York's gay community expressed their pride in their priest. He was a gay man. He was an Irish man. He was a priest. More importantly, he was a Franciscan. All of those go together. I meet up with Mike Daly on the Brooklyn Bridge. He's a writer with the New York Daily News. I'm told that uh, along here was one of his favorite haunts. Michael loved the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, he loved to walk it. It connected where he was raised, Brooklyn, with Manhattan, which he considered the epicenter of the universe. He would walk from 31st Street. He'd go over the bridge here. We'd go up through the neighborhood where he was raised. He'd walk on through Prospect Park, out Ocean Parkway to Coney Island, have an ice cream cone, turn around and walk back. I, he's, I remember after he was murdered, I was walking near the church and there was a guy lying on the street. He had no shirt and three pairs of pants on, none of which were completely done up. And I went up and I handed him a dollar. Michael used to hand dollars that were folded lengthwise. It was uh, just a sign of respect, so it was less of a handout. And uh, so I said, this is from Father Michael Judge. And the guy stood up and he said, Father Michael Judge was my spiritual advisor. They all knew him. I mean, for him, you walked the streets with him. It wasn't, oh, there's a homeless guy. It was, hi, Peter, hi, John, hi, Robert. Hi, Mickey. You know, I mean, Michael thought the whole city was a romance. I mean, he loved this city. I mean, there's no other place that he really loved. He, he was a multifaceted fellow. And uh, as public a figure as he was, he was also mysterious. And he seemed to have that peculiar ability to be in several places at one time. There are some people in the world who have that quality, and because uh, he could, he would concentrate totally on uh, on you. Uh, and you would think that you were his only concern, present or non-present. The other person that has that is, oddly enough, Bill Clinton. He has that same thing. You think that you have totally occupied his thoughts. He had a. He, he was also very theatrical. See, a good sense of drama. Then that was so. The robe, the Franciscan robe, was very dramatic. You know, uh, swinging about with the. Uh, ropes and rosary beads and all sorts of paraphernalia decked on his body there. He would not be a chaplain to the, um, the, uh, the, the rubbish and the sanitation workers, you know, because that'd be a quite green car and there'd be 
rubbish trucks, but you had the sirens and everything else on the, in the fire department. So, And, of course, he was at the fires. There he was in his uh, full regalia with his helmet and all, <laughs> which he had to wear. New York Firehouse Ladder 24 is on the other side of 31st Street from the St. Francis Friary. Father Michael loved to hang out there. Guys, this is Yvonne Judge. She's from Dublin. We're just having a, a little meeting and an interview here for a minute. Hiya, Mike. And Russ. Hiya, Russ. How are you? So this is this is Midtown Madness, Ladder 24. Yeah, that's what they call it. Isn't it great? I miss Mike. I hold Mike in my heart. I think of him every day. And I hope he rests in peace. Kind of his kind of priesthood. Got a bunch of regular guys um, knocking around, and that alarm goes off, and this kind of grace descends on them. And they hop on a rig. They don't know what awaits them. All they know is that people need help, and every single person on that rig, they wouldn't be getting on that rig otherwise, is totally willing to risk their lives on behalf of of even the chance of saving somebody they don't know. I mean, he was like their guy. I mean, even if you look at, after 9-11, there was a poster that showed all the 342 other members of the department who were murdered. And uh, there's this big face of Michael's on the poster, kind of smiling down on everybody. Chris Keenan is Michael's successor as New York fire chaplain. As a fellow Franciscan, he knew him well for years. I got to meet him when I was 20 years old, 49 years ago. And I say he got me in the business. Now he's giving me the business. The last five years of his life, we were here together back here at St. Francis of Assisi here in Midtown Manhattan. Um, and then when he died, um, I happened to, for a variety of reasons, ended up stepping into his spot. We crossed 31st Street to visit St. Francis Friary. This is a very rare place. Uh, this, it's, it's like Adam and Eve in Dublin in some ways. It's sort of the spirit in which St. Francis of Assisi exists here. We're a half a block, not even, where the streets leading into Penn Station, Madison Square Garden. Um, the entrance to the church is, is the second largest travel street in, of pedestrians in New York City. And, and now it's called Father Michael Judge Way. Well, yeah, down on 7th Avenue um, and 31st Street, it's called Michael Judge Way, yeah. I mean, everything's named after him. There's, there's um, uh, babies and boats and buildings and uh, planets, and uh, um, I mean, it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> yes. Brendan Fay, organizer of the Alternative St. Patrick's Day Parade, is visiting the Friary on Father Michael's birthday. Hydrangeas. Hydrangeas. Pink and fluffy. And baked like Michael Judge. For his birthday. Yeah, for his birthday. So we're standing here uh, in the basement of the Franciscan Church, St. Francis of Assisi, on 31st Street. He loved us so well. He really loved us, so many of us, so well. I often say Michael Judge had a heart as big as New York. And uh, I'm also bringing, this is the image of the, the banner that we carry every year in the St. Patrick's Parade that an artist in Brooklyn, Ian Hart, made. It's a big um, eight-foot banner. And the, the central image on the banner, in fact, is Michael Judge 
embracing with Henry, a homeless man outside the church. So wherever there was people, human need, human suffering, human pain, human anguish, on the streets of New York or wherever, Michael would often just show up and he was for me and for so many. And it's good to be here. So I'm, I'm going to leave these uh, postcards, a few of them here and a few upstairs. Uh, he was a great help to, uh, to alcoholics. While he himself uh, was an admitted alcoholic recovering which he was for years, and I know that for a fact because I am also a recovering alcoholic, and he helped me a great deal. Brian Carroll lived and worked with Michael as one of his closest friends in the New York Franciscans, having first met him as a student. I knew Father Michael from my freshman year in college at Siena, uh, and he was a, a, a true character, and we were there during the days when he got a perm, and it was then that he was really in his alcoholic period. You know, he'd had alcoholism for years, but he was drinking heavily. He was mixing everything in the bathroom. He had Cointreau. He was mixing all sorts of lovely little colored drinks. And, Were you aware of that? Uh, we we just thought he was a character. He was fun. He was gregarious, but he would be he'd misplace his car. He'd give his cars to the rugby kids to use, and then couldn't find it. And uh, would show up late, but you you wouldn't know. He was a good drunk, a secret drunk. Would you say that was kind of dealing with some of his demons, just drink them away? I'm sure at that time, you know, he was uh, just entering middle age, and um, everything caught up to him. Um, his, you know, he he knew he was gay, but wasn't out to anybody about that. There were few and far who knew that. I don't know any friars who knew that. He had some lay friends who knew that. Um, but I think that was, you know, a turning point in his life when he finally was able to deal with the, you know, I'm an alcoholic and had to come to terms with being gay. When it came to just being a regular priest, Michael was known to have that touch of magic. Priest, imams, rabbis, uh, ministers, going back in history, we cast spells over people. We're spellcasters. Um, and so Michael loved casting spells, and he could do that. He was a spellcaster; could grab your attention. And I, I could cast spells also, as Michael and I would say. We'd take walks up Fifth Avenue at night and go up to St. Patrick's Cathedral. You know, the easiest job in the world would be to be cardinal of the city. How do you have to be so alienating when you, when with a little kindness, some understanding, some flexibility in your thinking, you can you can be a peacemaker, and you can make things happen. Oh, he drove the Cardinal out of his mind. Uh, the Cardinal, I mean, I, I ended up feeling kind of badly for the Cardinal. He's, uh, he wanted desperately to be a great priest. In the same way some kid watching hurling wants to be a great athlete. That's what he wanted more than anything. And he tried every way he could, and he just didn't have it. And Michael just had it naturally and uh, you know Michael was the guy that walked on the pitch and could do anything from the first day and and Michael Michael had was had a very peculiar relationship with money he um, I've kept this envelope which was stationary his envelope as sort of a memento because we shared a checking account he was afraid to have 
his own checking account. You know, sex wasn't a problem, but money was a vice. So I have all the history of how he spent his money. And I'd keep like $200 in my checking account. These are all to AIDS patients. The and this is the St. Francis checkbook. This one's the uh, Hibernians or something. More for something with AIDS. Uh, mother of a kid with AIDS. Cash uh, to help pay someone. Uh, okay, to help someone with their wake. Uh, Brian, I have one uh, blank check. Uh, do you want it? Okay, and all these notes. I, it drove me crazy, all these notes you can see. Um, Finally, I walked him over to a bank one day and said, you have to get your own checking account because the IRS is going to come after me because it looks like you're laundering money. He was taking money from some wealthy attorneys downtown, then funneling it to Brendan Fay's gay parade, like $5,000, $2,000. I remember when uh, even the donation for the St. Patrick's Parade in Queens arrived. It arrived in an envelope from the ancient daughter of Hibernians. And, uh, who are the more conservative wing on the Irish community, and in fact, therefore, the main parade in Fifth Avenue had excluded. But this was Michael Judge. He would just interweave one from the other. Oh, Michael's favourite phrase in the world was, that he used in so many letters, his favourite phrase was, high levels of madness. And he would apply it to so many situations. Um, Sometimes he and I, I would often talk to him and we would have serious conversations about the church or the hierarchy or this or that or the other. Anytime I would bring up, you know, Cardinal O'Connor or something like this, my frustration, he would say, all it is is high levels of madness, high levels of madness. Brendan brings me over to the Cosmic Cafe. I love New York diners. So next I see Michael in his Franciscan habit. Now you have to remember how politically controversial the first inclusive St. Patrick's Parade was he had written the cheque and I said great he's supporting me in every way that he can and next um, we knew because um, word had got out that Hillary Clinton was coming but I'll never forget when I saw Michael Judge in his Franciscan habit and you see he wore that on purpose in fact, as another priest said to me once, Michael Judge wore his habit well. You can use that cloth for all kinds of reasons. And he chose when and how, and here he was, at the inclusive St. Patrick's Parade, which already a word had come out from the Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and the Queens, urging people to stay away. To my mind, Michael's high point as a priest I mean is you know the moments for which you'll be known will be in being in that North Tower but to me the highest point when he was as a priest was he was when I got a call saying that uh, the guy saying my partner's dying and um, he thinks God hates him would you come give him communion Brian Carroll also worked with AIDS victims in the early days. In the 80s, I was an AIDS buddy. I was living at St. Stephen of Hungary up on the Upper East Side. And I was petrified just breathing in the air and touching. So I'd come home and scrub. So that was the atmosphere in the 80s. It was terrifying. And Michael knew right at that time, he wasn't as terrified as a lot of other folks. He was just convinced that this was not something which was... Uh, that you could catch so easily by just being with someone. So I know, you know, 
Uh, in all the stories I've been told, he would anoint people, use his holy oils, rub their feet, he would kiss them, he would hold on to them. He wasn't terrified of the illness. And uh, I think that was very disarming and um, um, was a very important part of his ministry was you know, not treating people like lepers. So Father Michael's name would always come up as someone you could talk to. Sister Mary Lanning was also well known at the time as a visitor to the terminally ill. I began to hear of Father Michael as the AIDS epidemic emerged. Um, there were people who would, uh, the, there was a wonderful underground of compassion because we were all outcasts, even I who was caring for people. People were a little bit nervous now about having me come to dinner because I might be carrying something. So I would hear Father Michael's name over and over again. There's this priest who will come to you. There's this priest who will help you. They were all saying, gee, I don't want to spend eternity in hell. I wish I could at least go to confession and at least tell them I'm sorry. And many times they'd be saying, I'm sorry for what? I'm sorry for being who I am, for being honest about who I am. I met Larry and Ron at the South Street Seaport. And one Monday morning, early, about 2 o'clock, I came home. and. Um, there was a message on my answering machine, and there was something in the tone of the voice. It was Ron saying, Hun, which I was always Hun, call me no matter what time it is. It's something I've got to talk to you about. And I could get messages like that every day of the week, but there was something there in the voice that told me, 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm still going to call him. I called, and Ron answered the phone. I said, sweetie, are you okay? He said, well, I guess as okay as you can be if you've got AIDS. And um, Ron lasted for a long time because of Larry's care, Larry's exquisite care and all the experimentation with medication. So it may have been almost five years from the death sentence until he actually died. And uh, that was when I saw Michael, I guess, at, uh, at his most essential self. Ron was nothing but a skeleton with a little tissue layer holding it together. And when Michael picked him up that night and held him in his arms and crooned to him and rocked with him during Mass, having given him communion and just held him like a mother would hold a baby and just kept rocking, rocking, kissing him on the forehead, kissing him on the hands, and then put him back into his wheelchair and finished Mass. That, to me, was the God I'm proud to belong to. So often we paint God differently, and we think of God as the one who's keeping score, who could have prevented this and didn't, I don't believe in that God. That has never been my God. But the God of compassion and tenderness and love and understanding is my God. And watching Michael portray that to Ron at that time, when Ron was so vulnerable, as were so many others, facing death, Ron's own last words to me repeatedly the night he died were, he'd clutch my arm and say, is, God, is Jesus going to be mad at me, Mary? And I would just look at him and say, Jesus could never be mad at you, never. Um, I picked up Michael the day of Ron's funeral. And on the way to the cemetery, he said, Ron went down so fast. He said, when I was with you last week for the anointing, he said, I kind of thought he had a few weeks left. He went down so fast. And he, then he turned around and looked at Larry in the back seat, who was still crying, and, and said, um, it's better for you this way. You didn't have to carry on any longer, but it's also the worst thing in the world for you. So Larry had equipped every one of us with a handful of glitter, little snowflakes and glitter, so that when the final prayers were finished, we were to throw this up in the air and let it all settle on the grave. 
and let everything sparkle. Well, we did this, but it was an extremely windy day, so Michael's robes were blowing in the breeze, his hair was blowing in the breeze, and when we let go of the glitter and tossed it up into the air, it all blew right back all over Michael. In the weeks following the shock of 9-11, as truths about Michael Judge emerged, his friend, Brian Carroll, took time to take stock of his own life. This was someone who I sort of idealized with all his brokenness and all that. Um, I said, you know, it's time to move on. And 9-11, uh, it's time to be brave and to have my own integrity and do what I would like to do. And I left and never regretted it. But I think the, the, the pivotal night for me was a week after 9-11. It was coming out in New York Magazine and in some of the gay papers that a gay priest had died, you know, Father Michael Judge. And I was approached by uh, Jennifer Sr. from New York Magazine, a freelancer who did an article in New York Magazine, and I hemmed in her. I said, yes, I'll speak with you. And I spoke and said, part of Michael, his sexuality being gay, was gave him a distinct advantage in doing ministry because he was that was he knew his own outsiderness within the church and in the broader community and he had a sensitivity to other people's sense of their outsiderness i knew that as friars we needed to own our brother in his totality and we had a house meeting of all the friars in the chapel at 31st street and I had already talked to Jennifer Sr., and I, think, I, I believe I was tactful, it was tasteful, um, it highlighted how important his sexuality was to his ministry. I thought it was gracious, and we were told we were not to talk to the press, we were not to talk about his sexuality, we were never to let that, should never get out, and I stood up and told the provincial, I don't buy that. People know who he was. And why should we shame an important part of, of Michael's identity? He was a gay man. He was an Irishman. He was a priest. More importantly, he was a Franciscan. And I was told to sit down and yelled at and to be quiet. And I left that meeting. Not one other friar, there were about 40, not one friar looked at me or stood up or said anything. It was collective, collective shame. And that was the moment I was no longer a friar. Most of the people who knew Michael, you know, of my acquaintance, didn't know. And it wasn't... The sad thing is that, and I hope he knows that it wouldn't have made a difference to anybody. I mean, I mean, who cares? I mean, you know, you got somebody killed thousands of innocent people. You got people obliterated, you had people jumping out windows, and everybody's gonna go, oh my God, he was gay? Yes, there were several camps. There were those who refused to believe it because their Michael would not be gay because being gay is an abomination and I better, you know, that. There were certain people who, well, their Michael was only gay and was the gay priest and. You know, um, I, I know, uh, um, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot said about uh, things with regard to Michael, for example, and his sexuality. And um, uh, some people seem to know a lot more about him than I did. And I lived with him on two different occasions, you know. Um, and it doesn't really matter. 
so many people took claim of Michael, which which I can understand because he was a bit of a chameleon. He was a different person for different constituencies, and he knew those constituencies. And these are all good people, and I think some, uh, you know, it'd be great if they could get along. But some, to this day, claim that the the gay thing is a conspiracy by a, there's an agenda, which isn't true. And, he, and Michael was considerate of their, their Catholicism, their, their belief systems, and so didn't want to rock the boat. And with others, he was, you know, very out. You know, it wasn't, wasn't a, he wore an earring for Pete's sake, you know. You know, he wasn't a trailblazer by any means because there were a lot of gay clergy. He always said, oh, thank God for the church. It was a safe place for an Irish kid from Dean Street in Brooklyn to, you know, to hang his hat and to avoid having to deal with the whole question. And we estimated that 80% of the priests we knew, and I would hold today that 80% of the clergy are gay. Michael stated over and over and over again, when I die, I want my book written about being gay. And then I would say, why not write it now? And then he said, I'd love to. I'd love his greatest, one of the greatest uh, anxieties he, he carried or conflicts, a better word for it, would be the biggest conflict in his life was do I write it now, put it out there now, or do I wait till I die? But he never ever was going to protect his family from it. Throughout all this, it, it seems from talking to people, reading the book, whatever, that Al was the guy. Al, he was madly in love with Al. But Al was madly in love with a lovely, lovely man. Very gentle, very kind. He was very good to Michael. And Al was uh, Michael's Valium. He kept him calm. When Michael would flip up, he could go to Al's and have something to eat or just be held and watch TV. Al, Al gave Michael something he never had, um, um, tenderness, um, companionship, um, a listening ear, and um, challenged Michael on many levels. Al was pictured with Chris Keenan outside the friary after Father Michael's funeral. He came to me and said he was a friend of Michael's and he couldn't even get into his funeral. I said, well, listen, I can't get in either. I said, and I've given my keys to the Secret Service um, and they won't even give me my keys back. So why don't you just stand here with me for a little while, you know, which he did. But, I mean, it's the first time I ever met the man. I never saw him again. Chris knew who he was. He put his arm on Chris knew who he was. He just couldn't be associated because he wanted to be fire chaplain and to be, and to be in a man's world. And he's in there poo-pooing the notion of Michael being gay and trying to be a man. But uh, could, could Al not go to the funeral? Or? Al went to the funeral. All right. It was just, yeah. He just happened to be outside afterwards. Well, he happened to be outside afterwards. I wouldn't go into the church. I saw all the people going in. I stood across the street in the doorway of a little diner, and I stood in the doorwell in my habit. I was out in the street earlier, and I met the Clintons, which was lovely. They were very nice. Everell, who was this big black guy who came in his tuxedo, he was a character. He, Father Mike, but he didn't pay. He would get some money. He really needed money for some lodging, and the friars would yell at him and throw him away. But I'd always give him, if Michael was there, he'd say, make sure if ever, make sure you give him this because I'm going away. And I say, I'll look for him. So I always say, Everett, how are you doing this and that? So Everett came down his tuxedo he'd got from Housing Works or something with sneakers. 
And, the, and I went up to the police barracks. the only time I broke eyes in my head. I said, let him in. This man's coming in. And I brought him right up and sat. And I, I think I sat him right behind the Clintons or something. I brought him right up. And the police, and I said, this man's a best friend of mine. I brought him right up front and sat him. I said, oh, he would love, because he would love that. All these people with their hair and Giuliani who doesn't look anyone in the eye, you know. And, and I, I think I, had, I was at the best funeral with the best eulogies in the doorways across the street. And uh, that's where I experienced uh, the truth of Michael. And he was bigger than life in that regard. I've said, you know, if he had to go any way, he couldn't have scripted this better, to die with his boots on, because he was a vain man. And the photography and all, he would have loved all this, yeah. And I have a view of the World Trade Center out my, I'm in this penthouse floor looking down, this old office building down to the, and I look at it every day and uh, think of him and I have little mementos in the room from him that I kept, uh, but uh, little things that have little meanings to me and, um, and he's not here, but, um, you know, his story gets somewhat told over and over again and it's a bit of revisionist history here and there but uh, he was one of us just a schlub going about his job with a lot of anxiety and a complex guy he loved men loved God loved people um, was a good man and a good Franciscan <laughs>